there's a part of me every time I pull the stand up to use it, that part of me is expecting the top of it to come off. And then I'm going to be standing here trying to figure out how to put it back. And Tina's going to be thinking, what are you doing to my stuff? <laughs> well, <laughs> Tina says this one's Matt. She doesn't care. <laughs> Welcome to worship back at Martha's Chapel today. This is the second sermon series in our discipleship series as we talk about how are we disciples of Jesus Christ? What does God ask of us? What are we expected to do if we are followers of Jesus? Last week we talked about the great commandment and it absolutely dovetails well with this one as today we talk about the new commandment. Our scripture this morning is from the Gospel of John in chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. I invite you to hear God speak to us in these words of scripture. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, I give you a new commandment, that you should love one another, just as I have loved you. You also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I said last week that we talked about the great commandment and three of the gospels capture that story, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they all capture it in fairly similar ways. And right after that, Jesus says, and the second is like unto it, the greatest commandment. I told you that the rabbis like to sit around. They like to try to determine what's the greatest commandment. If you've got 613 rules, inevitably you're going to forget a couple of them or you're going to make a mistake. So if you can't do them all, what should you do? What's the most important to do? And it was you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind. And the second is almost like it that you love your neighbor as yourself. Now, my favorite version of that is Luke chapter 10's, where he puts those words in somebody else's mouth, in a disciple's mouth or a potential disciple's mouth, because he gets asked by a lawyer, what do I have to do to get eternal life? And Jesus says, what do you find written in the law? And he says, well, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your strength and your mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus goes, that's right, do that. And you'll be good. And he says, yeah, yeah, but. Isn't that what we do as disciples? Yeah, but. He then asks a question. Who's my neighbor? You see, when they were quoting the great commandment, they're quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema, the great confession of the Hebrew people. And this one, they're quoting Leviticus. We don't often go to Leviticus for a whole lot of stuff. There's a whole lot of rules in there that we don't do anymore. But they go to Leviticus where it says, you shall not take vengeance against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So that becomes the second rule. Let's talk a little bit about the setting of this discussion in the Gospel of John. Jesus has gathered with his disciples and God come in human form. The absolute best reflection we have of Almighty God walking among us, living, setting an example, and teaching us has now washed his disciples' feet. They've shared a meal together, and he has told his disciples that one of them are going to betray him. 
John, who is close to him, they're reclining around the table in the way they would have eaten at that time. And Peter motions to John and goes, ask him who, ask him who. And John says, Lord, who's going to do it? And in John's gospel, Jesus says, it's the one I'm fixing to hand this piece of bread to. He dips it and he hands it to Judas. So we have a savior who has washed the feet of the person who's going to be responsible for betraying him. He's washed the feet of a whole group of people who are all going to abandon him. And he shared a meal with the one he knows will do this thing. John then records that Judas exits the scene. He leaves the meal. And Jesus goes on to say, I'm only going to be here with you a little bit longer. This betrayal is going to happen. But in all of this, God is going to be glorified. And then he gives them this new commandment. You need to love one another. The things that are fixing to happen, the things you're going to go through are going to be things that are going to make you not want to love one another. But I need you to love one another. Let's go back to Luke's version. The lawyer then wants to clarify who's my neighbor. Here is a lawyer who is trying to do good, trying to do right, but he wants to know how he gets it absolutely right, like exactly who do I have to love? This one, um, Kyle brought this up this past week. There's several memes out there, little cartoon drawings where um, Jesus is saying, love your neighbor, and they go, my, my neighbor who's different from me, my neighborhood, and Jesus goes, I'll love them. I'll love them. I want you to love them all. So Jesus responds by telling a story that we know, which is the story of the Good Samaritan. He talks about a man traveling the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jericho was a priestly city. The priests of Israel didn't get their own land. Their tribe, Levi, had no inheritance among the people. They lived in cities given to them, distributed all throughout the rest of the country. And they made their journey to Jerusalem to do their temple service. They would do it for a week at a time and go home. Jericho was a priestly city. To have people serving in the temple going back and forth on this road would have been very common. So Jesus tells a story about a man who falls into the hands of robbers and is beaten and left for dead. And along comes a priest. A priest would have been a descendant of Aaron. These are the only ones allowed to go into the temple proper, into where the table is showbread, into where the golden lampstand was. They were the only ones who could do that part of the service. This is also someone who was trying to do service to the Lord in the best way he knew how. But he can't even be bothered to go over and see. It says he he goes around. (laughs) He goes around so he doesn't even have to get close. Now we've speculated down through time about why this might be. If he's on his way to the temple, then he'll be defiled if that body is dead and he won't be able to serve in the temple And maybe he just loves serving in the temple. Maybe he feels like he'd leave others in a lurch if he didn't. Along behind him comes a Levite. This will be others within that priestly tribe. They do other priestly duties. They help you with your sacrifice. 
They help you separate the parts. They help you wash. They maintain things in the rest of that great temple court, just not inside the temple proper. He's also a priest, but a little less auspicious of a pedigree than the priest before him. And he is at once both better and worse than the priest. He's better because his first instinct is to go over and take a look. Oh, somebody needs something. I should go see. And then his second instinct is, oh, I better not get involved in this. And so he too doesn't do anything. But it is the Samaritan who is the good neighbor. Now, you have to understand that the Samaritans were hated. If you've grown up with a story like I have, you don't often feel the gravity of this. We talk about Samaria. They hated one another. It went back to the splitting of Israel into two tribes, into Judah and Israel. And those who, the ten tribes who became the nation of Israel, set up a different worship site in a different place. It was considered rebellion. The people of Judah kind of said, you broke our country. (laughs) We don't like you and you have invalid worship and you won't admit it. They felt so strongly about this that when they were traveling to Jerusalem, they would make an extra journey around. It's a couple days longer to go around rather than even have to go through their territory. But this is the one who is compassionate. I think Jesus intentionally chooses others who thought they were being obedient and faithful and honoring God and intentionally chose one he knew would be the most offensive, the most challenging for them to hear. And once again, Jesus focuses on our actions, what we do as evidence of what we say we believe, of evidence of our faith rather than just our words or just our standing. Several times in his ministry, he says to them, being a son of Abraham doesn't mean anything if you behave like the devil. Church membership means nothing. If there's no evidence of Christ in our lives, church attendance means nothing, even in the incredible humidity that makes me look like I didn't dry off after getting out of the shower. If we don't live like Jesus has called us to live. I had friends who opened a restaurant. They, they owned the Cooter Browns in Jacksonville. And at one point in time, they opened one in Gadsden in a place, and I thought it'd be, it would go great guns because I love their barbecue. But they were in our Sunday school class at a different church. And I remember her saying, we can't get servers to work on Sunday, so we're going to have to not be open. And I went, well, I'm pretty surprised. I didn't know people felt that strongly about being in church on Sunday. She said, oh, they don't. <laughs> That's not it at all. They'd rather wait on drunks on Saturday night and people who come eat after church on Sunday. They're difficult. They're judgmental. They don't tip well. They're unkind. That was years ago. It was years ago before I even started in ministry, and that story still sticks with me. What an indictment of those of us who say we love God, that we have just come from claiming we've been in the presence of God, 
come together to worship, to hear the word proclaimed, to submit ourselves to his will, to line up with what God tells us. And 10 minutes later, we've already lost it in a restaurant and we have no love to witness for us. It hurts my heart. And I'm reminded that Jesus says, here's the commandment I give you. Love one another. That's how they'll know that you're my disciples. That's how they'll know. Not how you dress. Not where you go. Not your politics. Not your social principles. Not your friends. How you love how they'll know we belong to God. Now, you know that in English, we have one word for love, and we love everything. I love chocolate. I love my children. I love my husband. Very different kinds of love. But in the Greek, they had different words. And the word that is used here in this passage is agape, the strongest kind, the kind we use to try to describe God's love for us. We often call it unconditional love. But it's more than that. It is love that is backed up by commitment and by behavior. It is a self-giving love. Christ gave himself for us. And that even while we were still in our sin, that's how he showed his love for us. And I think that's what he challenges us to do. Rather than selfish, what I get out of this, we want the best for the other person. We want them to become all God created them to be, even if that's not what I want them to be or how I want them to be in relationship with me. But that's agape. I want the fullness of what God has for you. So that takes us back to to whom do we have to do that? Like I don't have to do that with many people, right? Because that's hard. At first glance, when you look at Leviticus 19, 18, you could say you only have to do that to other Christians, to other believers, because that verse seems to say to them, vengeance is forbidden and bearing a grudge against another Israelite is what you cannot do. Don't do that. It says any of your people. But if we just go down a few more verses... A few more of those instructions. In verses 33 and 34, it says, When a foreigner lives with you in your land, you shall not oppress them. The foreigner who resides with you shall be to you as the citizen among you. You shall love the foreigner as you love yourself, for you were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. We have to love everybody, every single person, because there is no other person on the face of the earth who has not also been made in the image and likeness of God, for whom Jesus did not die, and for whom the Holy Spirit does not want to draw into relationship and make like Christ, just like you. It even gets stronger in the prophets of the Old Testament, in Ezekiel and Zechariah, They say that to oppress the foreigner is equal with mistreating orphans and widows. And in the New Testament, we know that true religion is this, to care for the widows, orphans, for the most vulnerable and most in need. The prophet Jeremiah even goes further and says, 
but to not love the foreigner as well is equated with the shedding of innocent blood and idolatry. Very, very strong words. So in the Old Testament, as in the New, your neighbor is anyone that you encounter. It is someone like you, who's native-born, who's from your neck of the woods, who shares your interests, who lives in your cul-de-sac, goes to your school, shops at your grocery store. But your neighbor is also the stranger you see as you travel around town and across the world. Your neighbor is the homeless man who likes to sleep in the doorway to our bridge. It's the angry shopper in Target. It's the smart aleck who stole the parking place you had been waiting patiently for. It's the child who doesn't have enough school supplies and the family whose money can't stretch to buy enough groceries. The Old Testament insists that the Israelite people were not to be oppressive because they knew what it was like to have been oppressed. Don't become what you've experienced. Be better than that. Jesus builds on that in the New Testament and says, not only do you not want you, I don't want you to be oppressive, I want you to be loving. And I want you to be loving because you have experienced so much love and grace and forgiveness at the hands of God. Share that with others. Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 says love is the most important thing. It's one of the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit that we bear when the Spirit lives in us, according to Galatians 5. Romans 13, 9 and 10 tells us that love does no wrong to a neighbor, and therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Jesus even steps up the game in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, love your enemies not just those like us, not just those in need, but those who might even oppose us, work against us, be mean to us, gossip about us, try to hurt us, love them too. This is so much easier said than done. And when I struggle, I go to the little book of 1 John. About the middle of the third chapter and all the way through the fourth chapter, he focuses on this love. He says the message from the very beginning has been that we should love one another. Love is how we know that we passed from life to death with Jesus. Love means that you cannot see another brother or sister in need and refuse to help them when it is in your power to do so. And how do we love? 1 John 3.18, not in word or in speech, but in truth and in action. And in fact, we love one another because God is love. And if we don't love, we don't know God. Whatever we think we're doing, whatever faith we think we're practicing, if love is not characteristic of it, it's not the faith that Jesus calls us into. The great commandment challenged us to love the Lord our God with everything that we have. The new commandment encourages us to do the same to one another as evidence of an outflow from our relationship with God. If you are a disciple of Jesus, a believer, a Christian, there should be evidence and outflow. There must be.
Let us pray. Almighty and gracious God, you have poured out your love upon us. You have created the world because you wanted relationship with us. Over and over when we mess up, you keep making a way for it to be made right. And ultimately, you just put on human flesh and came down here and showed us how it's done. And now you've given us your Holy Spirit to try to live into that. Continue to lead us and guide us. Show us as individuals and as a congregation how to be disciples that become all that you want us to be. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.